Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Today's guest is Peter Levine. Dr. Peter Levine is the founder of the Somatic Experience Trauma Institute. He's worked in the field of stress and trauma for over 40 years and is the developer of the Somatic Experiencing Method. He's also the author of several books on trauma, including Trauma and Memory, Freedom from Pain, In an Unspoken Voice, and Waking the Tiger. Today, Levine and I are talking about the incredibly powerful way trauma lives on in the body and how we can learn to release it. He explains the importance of energetic movement and how to listen to what our bodies are telling us. Practices like skipping and making sounds are hugely beneficial. We talk a lot about recovering old memories and how to process this information in a healthy way and whether you can actually trust that they're real and whether that's important. He leads us through some sound exercises that can follow along with, and he even guides me through processing some of my own past traumas. Levine explains that trauma shuts down our vital forces, but when we understand how to process it, we can free ourselves from shame and disembodiment, and from there we find our way back to empowerment, which is the most important thing. The idea here is to come from the helplessness and the shutdown into aliveness, into vitality. You know, and, and, and to me, that's the essence of what good therapy should offer. Let's get right to my chat with Dr. Peter Levine. Well, thank you so much for being here. I am honored to talk to you. And of course, I wish I could be with you in person for all the reasons. But here we are in this strange and uncertain time. I'm assuming this is your first pandemic. No, not really. No, because I mean, there was the... Uh, uh, there were one couple of more uh, uh, some years ago, but they'll be here. They're always, you know, there and they'll be here forever. So this is something that we really adjust to, but to be able to not become paralyzed by, not to be unduly frightened, be alert, but not frightened. Yeah. Well, it's hard, right? Because we're in this period where we're in our homes and we're, scared of a threat that we can't see. Yes. And exactly. we're all having that, yeah, that collective response, right? That's right. And, you know, our biology has prepared us to deal with threats, to identify threats, and then to respond, usually by fleeing or fighting. And, but it's not prepared to deal with something that is completely hidden, that is potentially omnipresent. And is something that could be lethal. That's a lot of scare. 
really a lot of scare. And again, why it's so important for us to be able to at least be able to find our own center and be with our own center in, in this storm. I know that, you know, obviously you primarily work on physical trauma or with an emotional component and the way that that's stored in the body and then somatically expressed. But with trauma like this, that's sort of more subtle and insidious, does it live in our bodies? (laughs) Well, it does. It does. Again, again, because we're unable to localize it. Not only that, but we're also, you know, kept relatively immobile in our houses and we, we can't really get out and, and do the things that we, that we enjoy to do and that, you know, that brings us energy. So it's, uh, it's, it's definitely a unique situation to have something so deeply threatening, but that we're unable to locate it. And then if we get sick for any reason, the response of our body is to shut down conserve our energy, which of course is what we need to do if right. we're infected. You know? And and to know that this will, like all the other ones you asked if this was the first one, the answer is no. But with all of them, things have turned out okay. You know, they've gone through their cycles, they raised their potential level, but then vaccines are occur, vaccines are made. And the you know, the worldwide response shifts again, and it's no longer something that's life threatening. That's going to happen with this one too. I'm I'm pretty sure. Will there be an after effect of this? Like, will, are we metabolizing this in our bodies in real time, or do you think that there's that this will show up for people later? Yeah, there only will be a later effect for many people, not for all people, but but for many many people. And again, that's what we have to deal with because our bodies, again, the response, it can't fight or flee. Its response is shut down. So we're there, we're lethargic, we're unable to sleep or sleeping too much, kind of a pervasive depression and a pulling in of our energy. And so we really need to do things. We need to do things now that we can do in our homes, but we also need to do things afterwards to, again, bring up our energy our energy system so that we don't go on with the residual shutdown and this collapse and shutdown. So what do you recommend? Like what should people be doing on the regular to sort of keep it clean or, or do that sort of regular hygiene so that they don't, and they might still crash, but that there isn't that sort of ultimate right. breakdown? Yeah. Well, I'm not the first person to suggest movement. And, yeah. and not only movement, but energetic movement. One of my favorite things, quite frankly, is skipping, <laughs> skipping in, in place or skipping around the room. And that brings the energy up really quickly and then letting it settle. That's the key, bringing up the energy and then letting the energy settle. Let it bring up mm-hmm. the energy and then discharging the energy and letting it settle. And each time we do something like that, we actually increase our, our resilience. And again, that's what we need to cultivate situations that is resilience, because that's what's going to get us through to get it there. Another thing that I suggest to people do is when they have some difficult feelings or just 
any feelings that they're noticing in their bodies, just to take some time and to feel the inner sensation of it and feel how that sensation wants to move, how it wants to make mm. sounds. And I can give some examples in a little bit if you want to make sounds to let the um, the movement increase and then again to bring up our energy and to let our energy settle and it's these rhythms of activation and settling which are really essential in immunizing ourselves from the harmful effects of, of being in a situation like we're in so what would be examples of sounds? And you do that while you're moving? Yes, you can do that while you're moving or if you're even just sitting. I'll give you an exercise and you all please can play with it. And there's a nerve that goes from the back of the brain, the dorsal brain stem, all the way through the body, it goes virtually to everywhere in the body, especially the organs below the diaphragm, the, the gastrointestinal system. And when we're in the situation where we can't respond, can't see it, that nerve becomes overactive and it shuts us down. And the thing that many people, and it's the largest nerve in the body by far, largest number of neurons in the body. And what people, many people don't realize is that nerve is actually, I'm going to put in a big word here, is afferent, is sensory. In other words, it's taking information from our guts and relaying that information up through the vagus nerve into our brainstem. So it's able to switch things. So here, an example. We don't know what's going to happen. We, we're watching the news much too much. And all of a sudden, you know, we hear something scary and our guts tighten. And the feeling of that, the sensation of that is Ugh. Okay, so that's from the brain down into our guts, into our viscera. So that yuck is then sent back into the brain stem where it's amplified. So we start with a ugh, and then a ugh, ugh. And each time it cycles like that, each time it goes through that cycle, it amplifies and it becomes worse and worse so what we and it seems like and the threat is imminent that it's right ready to um, take us so when you make the following sound which i'm going to do the idea is to send a vibration physical vibration into the viscera which is where the the uh, receptors are that that feed into the vagus nerve that again go back into the brain the 80 to 90 percent that are sensory, that are taking information from the guts to the brain. And we put in a new signal, a different signal. And the signal can't coexist. Or I could say that the yuck feeling can't coexist with this new signal. So let's just do the exercise together. And everybody who wants to do it, please be free to join in. Now, sometimes it can bring up feelings and, and, and sensations, which is good, but it can be sometimes a little bit unsettling for somebody, particularly if they're not used to their internal feelings. So the idea is to take a full, easy breath and on the exhalation, I'm sorry, and on the exhalation, make the sound boom as though it's coming from the belly and letting the sound and the breath 
go all the way out and then just allow on its own the new breath to come in on its own, filling belly and chest, and then again repeating the rules. So I'll demonstrate it, do it a couple of cycles, and then we can do it together. So. And I feel the vibration really right in my gut and my viscera. I let the new breath come in. Would you like to try that? Sure. It sounds like a Bija mantra. Well, I mean, look, chanting and sounds have been around for thousands, I mean, probably tens of thousands of years. And, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't still exist if they, if they weren't beneficial. Now, this yeah. one is, this sound is specifically designed, I, when, I, when I developed the sound, is specifically devised to change that, those sensations from the gut that are going back up to the brain. But it, in general, chanting and, and sounding is something that, you know, that people have done in, together, together often in groups for, as I say, more than decades, more than centuries you know, more than millennia. And as you're you're shaking it loose or, or vibrating it out of your body, does there need to be a mental component? Like, is it important to even know what you're moving or is it just the whole point you're just getting, it's, it's just a soup and you're just getting it out and there doesn't need to be any emotional reconciliation? A soup, I like that. Yeah, all of the above. Sometimes people will experience vibration and trembling, which is the energy discharging itself. Sometimes images will come up, and sometimes thoughts or beliefs may come up. But mm -hmm. whatever comes up, let it just be part of that experience, the experience of the vibration and how it affects our inner regulation. See, again, the key here is that with this unknown, unseeable pathogen, we shut down. That's our, our only leftover defense, but it's not going to help us. It's only going to make us, in a way, more more vulnerable. But let's, yeah. just do the, let's do the exercise, Elise, and see what comes up for you. And then we can, if you want, play a little bit around with that. So together, easy, full breath. On the exhalation, the food, vibrating it into the belly, into the viscera sound and breath all the way out and then just allow the next breath to come in and then repeat okay so easy breath i can't and let the breath come in filling belly and chest and once more nice and rest i can feel that i can feel it like hitting anxiety that's for sure and and, and how do you experience the anxiety like a sharp pain in in the viscera yeah like in my sort of pelvic area pelvic. that's where i store all my stuff yeah okay so as you feel that sensation in your pelvic area Let's just notice and see if that pain, as you just notice it, increases 
decreases, changes to something else. Just be, be curious to open a stance of curiosity. What happens? Increase, decrease, remains the same or changes to something else. And again, just noticing whatever it is that you're noticing. Yeah. I mean, it wants to release. How do you know that? Just by inquiring of it what it wants. Ah, okay. Well, let's, uh, if you're willing, let's yeah. go on with this. And this time, I want you to try to, again, just direct, not the force, but just to direct the sound down into your belly and then also into your pelvic area, particularly where you feel that tension pain, okay? So again, let's just do this a couple of times, okay? So easy, full breath. Just rest. Just rest. Seemed like something was shifting there. Yeah. Now I feel really emotional. Mm. And emotional. In what way? Sad. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And again, if you can just allow the sadness to be there. And maybe to tell you what it needs, what it wants, what it needs. The sadness. Now I feel like I could retch. Like I, and I think I know what this is about, but it, it again, it goes deeper to your other work about trauma and memory yes. and what's in our bodies. Sure. Well, if you want, we can talk about that a little bit. I think so. Yeah. It just is, I mean, you see the progression and it takes yeah. place where, well, it sounds like there's something haunting there for you. Mm -hmm. So maybe yeah. if you want, we can just explore that a little bit and then look at the whole question of memory. Yeah. No, I would love to do that because I think for everyone, it's like, and you talk about that a fair amount, it's what is memory. And then what I think is so powerful about your work is how you help people transmute it or finish the experience in a more empowering way. Exactly. So yeah, I I was aware of your work. But I don't think that I was able to really be in my body or have any somatic expression or to even be able to talk to my body mm -hmm. until I did this, you know, all, of course, I like sort of skipped into the situation being like, oh, this will be interesting. But I did psychedelics for our Netflix show. Sure. And then after I wanted to experience MDMA with a therapist mm -hmm to be able to speak to it and to ask questions. And obviously it's illegal. And I wanted to do it with a, a, a really good underground therapist. And I expected, you know, maybe some birth trauma to come up because my mom was really sick after I was born. So I thought maybe that would come up. And what came up for me, which was not planted because I was – you know, I'm, I'm sure you know a lot about it, but for people who are listening, you know, you wear an eye mask and you're listening to music and you're just in your own body. And so I had this experience of feeling like I was in my own body for the first time. Mm. And it was very beautiful and powerful. And then I essentially, I, I don't know where I was just like, oh, I was, I was molested as a child mm -hmm. by a friend 
of a family friend. Mm. And I think I know where it happened. I don't fully, I remember events around it, Mm -hmm. but I don't know what happened. And then what then happened in this MDMA experience, and I was fine because like you're in that process, you're not re-traumatized. And I still actually don't feel re-traumatized by it. Mm But it explains so much in my life, yeah. including some sexual, like sort of assaults where I had sort of a strange reaction to like stiffen. And then the next part of the experience was that my body started to release in my hips. And I was doing I, the my legs would shake, then my hips would roll, then my back would arch, then my shoulders would roll. And I would just do this over and over and over and again. And I've done that twice. I've done the MDMA assisted psychotherapy twice. And then halfway through the second experience, he got me to make sound while I was trying to do these stretches and then the movement stopped. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if, I don't think it's all out of my body. And then I've gone into it, into that trauma with my therapist doing EMDR and the somatic experiencing has been very powerful because the whole time I was like, is that a real memory? Yes. No one planted it. Right. It came out of nowhere. Right. And then what what I realize and why I think it's true and why I think it's created problems for me and so much shame around like sexual pleasure and being in my body is that when I've had three, if you count this experience, which may or may not have happened when I was young, when I was maybe seven, this a high school trauma, and then a college trauma where I managed to get away. And when I went into my body in EMDR through all three of those experiences, as in college, I felt fear. In high school, I felt angry at my friends who allowed the situation to happen and didn't sort of throw me a line. And then as a child, I felt pleasure in my body. So that was the story. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, uh, what was it? Uh, Bernard Shaw said, the best revenge is success. <laughs> so coming back well, to your a- body, into your power, into yourself. Yes. That's it. it and, and that's... And it's not, it's not critical of the memory. This is, I think, where people get sometimes get tripped up, whether the memory is true or false or some of one of the... Who knows? But, you know... There's a wonderful movie, it's called Eve's Bayou. And it was written and directed by Cassie Lemon. She's the one, she was the director and writer for, for Harriet, Harriet Tubman's story. Mm. Amazing, amazing uh, writer and director. And uh, the protagonist says at the very end of the movie, like others before me, I have the gift of sight, but the truth changes color depending on the light. Mm. And tomorrow can be clearer than yesterday. Memory is a selection of images, some elusive, others printed indelibly on the brain. Mm. Each image is like a thread. Each thread is woven together to make a tapestry of intricate texture. And the tapestry tells our story. That's the most important part. The tapestry is what tells the story. And it doesn't mm. matter, did this little literally actually happen in this exact way at this time? It really doesn't matter. It's freeing ourselves from that shame and disempowerment and disembodiment that really is, is what's critical. You know, that was the reason after I wrote in an unspoken voice, I realized that, I, you know, a whole other part, uh, it was just too much to put in that one book. 
And so then I wrote the book Trauma and Memory. It really, because there's such misunderstanding among not only lay persons, but by therapists about what memory is and how tra trauma memory, memory is different than other kinds of memory and so forth. And also how we can be fooled and why it's important to really go back to our bodies and let it unfold in its own way. I'm thinking of this one young man started working in Colorado in Boulder, must have been 19, 1988, 1989. And I was asked to see this young man who was in quite a severe depression. And so I met with him. His therapist, you know, told me a little bit about him and what had happened. And he had uh, gone, he was depressed, but not depressed to the extent he was now. He, he went to a therapist and the therapist, you know, asked him about his symptoms. And she said, he said, I, I don't know how to tell you this, but your symptoms are the same symptoms that all of my patients, all of my clients who have had sexual and ritual abuse have had. So he joined this recovered memory group for a year. And in the group, people yelled and screamed and, you know, let out their pain, supposedly. And memory after memory would come up in these groups. And so he had, again, all of these frightening memories of being sexually abused and, and so forth. So when I was working with him, a little bit the way I was just working a little bit with you, of finding the, and I assured him that I wasn't going to be looking for any memories that were just going to do things to kind of help him come out of his depression. He was relieved that I sure and then he felt a pain in his lower back and uh, no sensations at all in his genitals and when I had him be able to look at the tension that underneath that was underlying the pain he could feel the tension and then I had him just follow the tension and just see what the tension would be wanting to do and it was retracting his pelvis. So it was like tipping his pelvis backwards. Then all of a sudden tears started to flow from his eyes. And he said, oh, I know what this is about. When I was 12 years old, I think it was 12, he had undergone a circumcision for, I guess, for some kind of medical reason. And his mother was told to change the bandages every day. And she was so uncomfortable that she ripped the bandages off, which caused anguish and just oh. really caused him to shut down his whole pelvic sensation, whole genital sensation. And that was what was really leading to his symptoms. But so you have to be really careful to work with this tapestry and let the yeah. tapestry tell the story because the story might be very different what the and then what the mind thinks it is and mm -hmm. and again in in the in trauma and memory i really talk about these different kinds of memories four different kinds of memories and how they interlace with each other how they interface with each other and again the idea here is to come from the helplessness and the shutdown into aliveness into vitality yeah. You know, and, and, and to me, that's the essence of what good therapy should offer. 
We'll get back to Peter Levine in just a second. Over the past several years, we've held eight intensive in-person wellness summits called InGoop Health. They have been some of my favorite days. If you've ever attended one, you know how fun they are and how goopy they get, and also that they are highly produced affairs. The team pays attention to every single detail, and the gift bag at the end of the day is legendary. But the most meaningful part of the experience is the community that has formed around InGoop Health, full of people who want to connect more deeply with themselves, the people in their lives, and the world around them. Right now, this community feels more important than ever. And for a long time, we've wanted to find a way to make it and the spirit of InGoop Health more accessible to people wherever they're at. So we've decided to host a digital series of InGoop Health sessions. Each Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific time, me or GP will kick off a one-hour wellness session with an expert we admire. We'll cover spirituality workshops, more intimate conversations, workout classes, and practical effective takeaway tools for navigating this time. The sessions will be live streamed on YouTube initially and they are free to join. If you can, we hope you'll consider making a donation to Doctors Without Borders. I'm very excited for our next session on Wednesday, May 13th. It's with sex and relationship therapist Ian Kerner. He's going to be leading us through a workshop on desire, which will include some fun sexual trivia and also remind us that we're all normal. I hope you can join us this week and every Wednesday for the series. To learn more, head to goop.com slash ingoophealth. You can also watch our previously recorded sessions there. That's goop.com slash ingoophealth. Back to my chat with Peter Levine. I've read Trauma and Memory and and the other examples in the book of going into, I guess, known traumas and then being able to, with, with physical symptoms, and then being able to complete a more empowered response in that moment. But do you ha- don't you have to know what you're working on in order to do that? Like in my case, not knowing what happened or if anything happened, but knowing that this has been part of my life, how do I get it out? Yeah, well, typically yes and no. You know, it's uh, it, it's some of both, some of it either. You know, again, I, I, I don't think it's important that we know and remember all of the details. And, you know, and often when we feel the healing, when we feel our power coming back, then often we will get more clear images, you know. Mm. And again, like like Casey Lapp says in her screenplay, you know, that memory is a selection of images. Some are loose, others printed indelibly on the brain. And some of those Mm -hmm. images can be very powerful, and we have to work with them. And we have to see what what could have happened that would have prevented the person from going into the collapse, the shame, and to to bring up the, their vital force, which because when all trauma shuts down our vital force, yeah, and uh, and so again, in at least in my way of looking at things, the key is in restoring this force, and then different images will come, and you know. I even think of, you know, my own experiences. Sometimes I'll think, oh, yes, this is true. Or, 
no, maybe I'm making it up. Maybe it's screen memory for something else. And part of this is, and I, this is very important, because people are very haunted by this, by these types of, did it really happen? And, and sometimes the answer is yes, and sometimes I don't know if it happened. And part of it is because these experiences occur in altered states of consciousness. That's one of the reasons why MDMA can, you know, activate some of these memories, because it increases that higher level of arousal, but with more self-compassion. And uh, by the way, you know, because uh, there's a lot more going on now with research and so forth with MDMA and other catalysts. I mean, there, there are several others, ayahuasca, mushrooms, even LSD, that all have somewhat similar effects. But I think the key is in helping the person access these sensations and feelings not when not using drugs. Because, again, yeah. that happens in an alternative consciousness. So we, we need to be able to access our feelings within the more or less normal range of conscious state. So again, I would say, if it did, if this happened, then what does that mean to me now? And what does yeah. it mean to me now if I'm no longer gripped in the teeth of whatever it is that happened, and I I have myself back, you know? Yeah. And then from that stance to be able to look and say, well, you know. I think maybe the reason, you know, that I never told anybody was because I believed that no one would believe me. Or maybe maybe he told me that nobody would believe me. I think that I thought I created it. Yeah. Well, I think I thought I seduced him is my sensation of it, that I I made him do it. Yeah. Well, again, that is one that, you know, usually needs some untangling because... Children don't, I'm sorry, Sigmund Freud, but children don't seduce, you know, their, their grown-ups. Well, they want attention. And, and that's where this movie, Eve's bio, is quite brilliant, really quite, quite brilliant. Sometimes when the, when the child feels that the only way they can get attention from an adult, because they see the adult, you know, doing, you know, sexual things in front, you know, and not even with their spouses, and where the child is seeing that, then they learn, okay, if I, you know, if I want to get my father's attention, you know, then if I somehow act the way those women are acting in the seductive way, so, you know, that's possible, you know, but children, you know, especially around the age of six or seven, four, five, six, uh, five, six, seven, eight, they're really, that's it age when they're really full of themselves and developmentally that's a time when when children are practicing flirtation not flirtation in sexual sense but in playful how does it feel to be in my body when i move and i feel my shoulders moving how does that feel you know it feels good and so often pedophiles perpetrators will see the child there and they will interpret the child as being seductive to them. Not, mm-hmm. yeah. And then that's when they will often breach that sacred brown, uh, boundary. So again, you know, there was Freud originally thought that all of the traumas were sexual violation. Then he changed that they were due to, you know, Oedipal complexes where the child wanted to seduce the parent. 
So I think it is so much more complicated than either of those alone. And it takes great courage to deepen our exploration of those mm-hmm. issues. And we see the result of that when we are able to be in, engaged in a healthy sexual relationship with a partner of our choosing. Right. That's the key. I, I also think that there is, there's, and I think it speaks to the situation that we're in too, where sometimes there's like an act or an, an event and it's easy to understand it's it's a matter it's a a matter of matter right and then for so much other parts of this it's energetic or it's our ability to perceive or to feel you know like that any every woman listening has been looked at lecherously has been sort of energetically violated at some point and yeah i mean look it all gets yeah. soupy i mean you look at the statistics i would say at least 50% of the population, probably maybe a little bit less with men, more with women. I'm not sure if that's really true. But that's what the statistics say. And but then there's a lot of this other stuff, which which is kind of like an inappropriate seductiveness, and that can in some ways be even more confusing because the parent may be exhibiting that towards the child. And the child doesn't really know what to make of that. And again, they want the attention from the parent. Children, we all need attention from our parents. It's probably a a need more basic than almost any other need that humans experience. And so that's also a breach of the boundary. And sometimes that Mm -hmm. can be more difficult to work with because it's not clear. But it's this kind of fuzzy feeling of, something going on that just doesn't feel right but we're unable to localize it you know yeah so again it's this it's this really gentle teasing things apart with self-compassion again i think that's where mdma is very helpful because it does yeah you know help with that but again it's essential that work also be done in the drug-free situation Totally. Yeah. It, for me, it was just like, oh, now I kind of understand what I'm working with. And here's this kind of through line that explains a lot of the way that I feel. But I love this this line from Trauma and Memory, where you say, somatic experiencing, the approach I'm utilizing here, is not primarily about unlearning overlearned outcomes of trauma by rehashing, but about creating new experiences that contradict those overwhelming feelings of helplessness. And if that's the goal, because like for me, I don't, as much as I have some morbid curiosity, I don't care. It doesn't serve me to really even know. I just want to, as you say, I want my power back. And how do we do that? Like how, what are the steps of creating those new experiences? Well, you know, I mean, we were sort of doing that a little bit just, you know, uh, some minutes ago with that exercise. To find, because we all are meant to feel alive and to feel powerful. Alive and powerful, that's what human, human being a human is. And these new experiences, and you said a key here, is in creating new experiences, which specifically contradict those of overwhelming helplessness. So every time yeah. we feel some more empowerment in our body, we're able to look maybe back at some of those things that were overwhelming 
were overwhelming, but we're not being overwhelmed by them now. We're observing them and sensing them and feeling them and being kind to herself about those experiences. Mm -hmm. Well, and you talk about it too, sort of near the end of the book, where these traumatic memories, not that anyone invites them into their life, but then they're grateful to have them, right? Because you say the disempowering problem with eliminating painful memories, because this is about this idea that there's a way of of taking, that there are drugs that theoretically would erase parts of our memory, Mm. that eliminating painful memories is that pain is often our most potent teacher. Maturity is about learning from our mistakes and struggles. Indeed, authentic wisdom is not free. There is a wonderful word in the Danish language that is particularly relevant to this process, Genem love, which I'm butchering, sorry, which <laughs> which translates roughly to roughly as to live something through to through to its completion, to remain aware of and in contact with the process, and then finally to come to peace with it. Well, I couldn't say that better myself. I guess I did. <laughs> you did, but that's that's. Are we just as as humans? Not the trauma is put in our path for this purpose, but maybe it is. Is this our way of growing our resilience and becoming stronger and more enduring? Yeah, I think it is, really. I, I do think it is. One of, one of the other books I wrote, a, a guide for parents, is called Trauma-Proofing Your Kids, A Parent's Guide for Instilling Confidence, Joy, and Resilience. What I discovered in working with children and then following them into adulthood is that when children are guided, through different traumas. I'm not talking about the parents being traumatized in them, and this is something that it's not trauma that's caused by the parent. But anyhow, in working with, I mean, children, you know, they, they fall, they wind up in emergency rooms, they go through plate glass, windows, you know, and they're terrified. But when the adult is able to help them move through those difficult emotions and feelings, I think the children then become stronger and stronger and stronger and embody greater resilience throughout their lives. And I'm thinking also about the, you know, the po- political situation here, because when when people are fearful, uh, they will, if some demagogue autocrat says, you know, this is why you're feeling bad. I know that these people are trying to what take away your your jobs, uh, your wives, God knows what. And I, I'm the only one who can protect. So using fear, which is a very Mm -hmm. strong political operation. If people are resilient and they are able to not get stuck with their fear, then they're much less, much less likely to be uh, led astray by somebody who says, I'm the only one that can really make you safe. Really, we're the mm. only one that can really make us safe. So true. And I think, too, when you think about our culture, and if we're just even specifically talking about the U.S., but this is certainly global, I think so many of us have these sometimes specific, sometimes generalized traumas that we might not be conscious of, right? Mm-hmm. Or we are. And then we Un- we unburden ourselves or unleash ourselves on each other and just sort of like continue the moss ball rolling, right? Like we're just, we're expressing all of our trauma on each other. And it's, at some point it has to, we need some sort of collective healing. And I don't know, maybe that just starts with awareness. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, I would say so. It's definitely with awareness. Well, I mean, you know, what's going on now, and plus what's been going on for the last few years before this, you know, has brought up a lot of people common. And I'm thinking now about, you know, about so many women, or, and men too, who have been sexually abused and not been mm -hmm. believed, and then who have spoken out and have not been believed. I mean, it's like everybody who's had some kind of trauma is going to see that and just be in despair. Just be in, in really in despair because it just reinforces and says, you know, what their belief is that nobody will believe you. You know, that somehow you brought this onto yourself. Or it's, it, it, it's a difficult situation. And I think people need help and guidance more than any other time as they do right now with the epidemic and with also with the body politic, what people are have been experiencing during the last few years. Yeah, because as you say, I mean, it's in a way, everything has the potential to be traumatizing from fear of pandemics yeah. to fear of job loss, home loss, straightforward abuse. Yeah. the what's ha you know as you said what's happening politically and and these abuses of power which are so incredibly um prevalent and very triggering right i i mean i think everyone is at home dealing with their shit to some extent or not and so and so i guess going back to to vooming and so is that like sort of the play like you start there and then you start the gentle inquiry of your body and of where you're feeling pain or sensation or emotion and you just sit with it. Is that? Well, that's certainly, that's certainly part of it. I mean, I, you know, I do a lot of more different kinds of things that I will guide people to do similar, but different than, you know, just did. And, but the main thing is I'm, I'm, I'm monitoring what's happening with them, comes up with them, what emerges in the different kinds of somatic exercises, I guess you call it, you know, and, you know, it's scary if you don't know if you're, if you're going to lose your job. I mean, that's really scary. And you have your family and your children to protect, you know, that's terrifying. And again, I think using people's fear of that can be used to manipulate them. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, all of these things are scary. And some of them are, you know, there are within the realm of possibility. I mean, people don't know. There's a lot of ambiguity, a lot of unknowns here. You know, one of the things I've noticed when I've come back into the United States, and I could be in another country where there's a lot more violence, really a lot of violence, danger, real threat. And I mean, this is over years and years, decades and decades coming. I mean, and I'm always startled when I land in, you know, in the airport in L.A. or Chicago or wherever it is. And I see how much fear people are holding in their bodies. And I've always wondered, why is that so much more here in the U.S. than in other places? And I think part of it is in many places, people... I, either because of extended families or because of their better social net, safety net, social safety net, that people here know that they could be living out on the street. 
at any mm-hmm. moment. And and people in the other Western countries, they don't have that. You don't have that if you live in Denmark or Norway or Sweden or Germany. You don't have it to the same degree. So, you know, again, I think that's, again, something that we want to get some stability from our environment. I, I mean, it's one of the reasons I, 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 I live in Switzerland for usually four months out of the year. And... <laughs> By no means a perfect culture. No question, not a perfect culture. But you know, in Denmark, people can trust in their governments that they won't be thrown out in their street, that their children are going to be okay. So again, these are decisions, these are things that we, you know, agree with as a society. It, it leaves us more vulnerable than it than, Yeah. You know, it certainly feels so mean, and it's just wild to see how not only how many people and families are living paycheck to paycheck or not even that, but how many businesses are yep. and how tenuous this whole system happens to be and what it's sort of a shambles of a bedrock to build a yeah. healthy, functioning society. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully we can do better because I agree. It's like, it's, it's so unsteady. How can any of us feel safe? And at the same time, we're so inter interdependent and we've been trying to ignore that or pretend that that's not true, but we are all so interdependent that. Indeed we are. And we're social mammals and that's our nature. And again, that's one of the things that's again, so distressing to so many people is, you know, they say social distance. And I think that's the wrong word. I, I mean, I don't think they mean it this way, but it's the wrong term. It should be physical distance with social connection. Yeah. And that is vitally important. And that's one of the ways that technology, you know, can be extremely beneficial to help us be in contact with each other. It was wonderful. I, I, I saw a video in Italy. There was a really severe outbreak there initially, and the people were quarantined. But, you know, somebody would come out onto their balcony and play the guitar. Another person would come out and play the accordion. Another person would come out with pots and pans and start banging the pots and pans. They were connected. They were saying, you are not alone. We are in this all together. And in that together lies our power, our potency. Mm, Totally. And it's, you know, I do think times like this, too, are a reminder, uh, a very affirming reminder of how good people are and how, you know, how we're all desperate to help. I think we've just sort of lacked the tools, but we all want to be that person for someone or a family. And yeah, you know, um, yeah, some, uh, people in uh, in Ireland, they, you know, the uh, young people, healthy people, they're putting up. Thing on, on you know on on telephone poles or trees or whatever, and with their with their phone number and their email and saying if you need any help, please contact us. And you know they they especially put that at near homes where people where there are older people. You know can we shop for you? Can what can we do for you? Mm. And that's what a society should be doing. I mean that's 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 we that that's the collective, which was our greatest strength. Because most totally. we don't fight or flee enemies. We really are successful because of our ability 
to form into social groups and you know in this in this kind of thing where people are asked to wear masks and so forth or shelter at home it may not make us safer but it's going to make all the other people come in contact with safer and you know and we hear we don't have that kind of they other you know i think that's one of the things is, i know it's going in a bit of a different direction but i think that's one of the things that the military people have because i work with a lot of military people from all the way back, actually back to world war ii and is that that band of brothers that you know that you will have the, your fellow brothers safety and life above yours and that's a very different kind of feeling than this kind of you know runaway hoarding of uh, you know the toilet paper right <laughs> i mean you know other people have asses they need to wipe <laughs> you don't have to yeah. take everything <laughs> i know it's so true and I mean, hopefully we can all, I think, you know, when I think about something like climate change and how rapidly the world is is evolving because of our impact, it's, if, it's not that that unites us towards sort of the common enemy. I don't know what it will be, but I agree. We're missing that, that recognition that we're not separate people. We're all humans. We're a single race. And yeah. And that if we're going to survive it, we, we're going to have to figure out how to do it together. Yes. And again, you, I couldn't have said it better. So I, I laud you for that. Yeah, that's exactly right. If we don't get it together, we're not going to get it together. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Peter Levine. For more on Peter and his work with somatic experiencing, head to traumahealing.org. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.